0: Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma TraumaCast series. I'm your host, Dr. Babak Sarani, Associate Professor of Surgery at the George Washington University. Joining us today is Dr. Joseph Sacron, Assistant Professor of Surgery at the Medical University of South Carolina. Following completion of his general surgery training at Inova Fairfax Hospital in Fairfax, Virginia, Dr. Sachrin just completed a fellowship in trauma and surgical critical care at the University of Pennsylvania. He is joining us today to discuss how he was able to secure both an excellent fellowship and job with the hopes that his insight and some of his experiences will be applicable to residents applying for fellowship and for fellows who will be starting the search for employment in a few months. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Sachrin. Thank you, Dr. Swami. Let's start by asking you to just summarize your medical training from medical school through fellowship. Where did you go and how did you get there?
1: Well, I I attended the Medical School for International Health, which is a collaboration between Ben Gurion University and Columbia University. And in addition to the basic U.S. science curriculum, we're educated in treating those in medically underserved areas. And we focus on different aspects such as disaster preparedness, refugee health care, and other public health aspects. During medical school, I realized how important public health was gonna be as part of my career, and therefore, I took a year off between my second and third year of medical school to complete a master's of public health at the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Upon graduating from medical school, I attended a Nova Fairfax Hospital surgical residency. Having grown up in Northern Virginia, And rotated at Fairfax Hospital as a student, I realized it was the best fit for me, allowing me to gain a broad general surgical experience with the ability to also grow academically. Throughout residency, I was heavily involved in research and even obtained a grant allowing me to study procalcitonin in critically ill trauma patients. So after graduating residency, I started fellowship at the Penn Trauma Center uh, which, as you know, is part of the Hospital University of Pennsylvania, taking part in the two-year track program that focused on traumatology, surgical critical
0: care, and emergency uh, surgery. So when along all this did you decide that you wanted to be a trauma surgeon?
1: So, you know, my story is probably a little bit different uh, from others, but my interest in trauma critical care really started when I nearly lost my life at the age of 17 after a high school football game. After a gunshot wound to the neck, resulting in multiple uh, injuries, including a left carotid injury, as well as a vocal cord injury, I still can vividly see the expressions on the many uh, people trying to help me that day. And the chaos around me uh, in the trauma bay filled me with both fear and awe, fear that I might die and awe at the fearless purpose of the medical personnel fighting to save my life. So a prolonged hospital stay and many operations gave me a second chance, and thus I realized that one of the most gratifying experiences would be able to give others that same second
0: chance that I received. That's an interesting story, but I guess it's good that most of our applicants for trauma surgery won't be able to give a story that's that robust and incredible. So how does one go about expressing an interest in trauma surgery uh, to a to a fellowship director and um, really kind of stand out and, and and when you try to answer that question, if it's possible, bring in some of your backgrounds outside of the gunshot wounding. So, for example, you went to Ben Gurion University and you ended up at Fairfax and subsequently Penn. These are big leaps. So, how, what advice can you give somebody who has something like that but hasn't been shot?
1: Sure. No. And I, look, I think that's. Uh... A great point and uh, you know that's why I said it's it's a little bit different from uh, the typical story that you're gonna hear but I think it's unique in the sense that everyone has different experiences that shape their life and their trajectory uh, and this just happened to be mine but it wasn't the sole purpose and so I, I was very lucky as a medical student Uh, I met Dr. uh, Samir Fakhry, who, uh, as you know, has been one of uh, my mentors and really has helped me throughout the whole process from, you know, being a medical student to a resident to, you know, going into fellowship and now uh, as uh, a faculty uh, in his shop at the Medical University of South Carolina. And, you know, I know that many individuals look at what they can uh, do to build up the CV. I understand that the reality of that, whether it's for applying to fellowship or applying as, uh, you know, a faculty candidate or even for promotion later on in one's career is important. But I've always lived by uh, the notion of doing things for the right reason. And I think that if you do things uh, for the right reason, uh, everything else falls into place. So so what does that actually mean? Well, I allowed my interest in trauma-critical care to guide me as to what questions um, remain to be answered in the field, and it helped me better clarify how I wanted to kind of progress from a research standpoint. And so as I began coming up with questions and ideas, I utilized mentors such as Dr. Fakhry to help guide these projects and help provide me with advice as to how to best
0: implement them. And that's what led you to... The procalcitonin project, for example. Yeah, and so that's what led me to.
1: So, the procalcitonin project is interesting because, you know, I was actually uh, presenting uh, another study at uh, the Society for Critical Care Medicine, and I heard uh, this talk on procalcitonin, and I thought, wow, how uh, interesting, uh, how creative, and how something that hadn't really been done in trauma patients at that time in the US. And so that kind of sparked my interest. Uh, Which led me to, you know, talk to some of my mentors. And I I think that's one of the reasons it's so important to kind of be out there in the community, you know, presenting papers, trying to do research, trying to network. Because the more you do that, the more you learn about what's going on within your field and maybe even outside your field. And it helps uh, stimulate uh, some of those ideas that can really uh, build your career
0: yeah i I very strongly must uh say i agree with you and I think that um uh getting to know people and going out to the meetings and presenting at the meetings um and hopefully having a mentor or two to help you out is is critical
1: yeah and you know what I would say is uh many of us have ideas and can even muster up you know putting together an abstract, but I think the key is Uh, to follow through with the projects and ensure that the manuscripts get written and published. And as one of my dear mentors, Dr. Patrick Riley, uh, would say, publications are worth their weight in gold. And he's absolutely correct about
0: that. But a poster isn't.
1: Well, look, it's a good start, but I think, you know, uh, any mentor would tell you that a poster is just the beginning. Uh, And to really kind of follow through with it, you have to complete the manuscript. And so I think... uh, it's uh, it's important not only to put together the abstract, the poster, to go to the meeting and present it, but also to make sure that you write that manuscript up so everyone else uh, out there in the community in the field can see what you're doing. Uh, and I think any uh, any good uh, academic mentor would uh, would probably uh, guide you in that way.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. So let's let's kind of just get down to the fellowship uh, for a second and um, try to. Uh, focus our uh, comments now to the resident applying for fellowship. Choosing a fellowship is clearly very subjective, very personal. Everyone's going to want something different from their fellowship. But having said that, what are some attributes that you think are important when evaluating a program from an applicant's perspective?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I, I would agree with you that I think it's a very subjective and uh, personal uh, type of process. One of the things applicants for fellowship must do is sort through the abundance of well-qualified programs that currently exist. And each applicant really must carefully evaluate a few things, such as your own personal strengths, weaknesses, uh, your ultimate future position that you potentially see yourself being in. And so Are you going to be working in a rural community trauma center or will you be in an urban academic center such as the Penn Trauma Center? And I think that is truly important when you're trying to evaluate these different fellowships, at least for me, is to find a balance in your fellowship, which is what I looked for when I was applying. So I didn't want a program that had excellent surgical critical care experience, but a limited operative experience and vice versa. So if you're like me, that limits uh, your places since you would then need to be at a place with a relatively high percentage of penetrating trauma. Now, I'm not saying that this is the correct way, but it just made sense for me. So, you know, regardless of where one eventually ends up, being super qualified never hurts. And so even if I don't ever see another gunshot wound to the chest, I'm now comfortable dealing with that issue. I guess the other major uh, factor for me was mentorship, which we just talked about. And I can't really stress how important that is. We all have numerous mentors for different stages of our lives and having excellent mentors is the key. And will really help guide you um, not only through patient scenarios uh, during your fellowship, but also provide one for future advice. Um, that is really, in my experience, has been invaluable. I'll always be indebted to both Dr. Schwab and Dr. Riley and others at the Penn Trauma Center for all the guidance that they started two years ago and that they continue to provide me, me on a daily
0: uh, basis. Now, one way, I so I agree with that, and one way that I try to assess um, the strength of mentorship, particularly when I'm an applicant, I'm just looking at the program, I really don't know the people quite yet, is I look to see where their graduates went. And I guess, Uh, as an index, one could postulate that if the graduates are assuming great positions, leadership positions as time goes by, then in turn, they must have had good mentorship during their training period. So uh, from my perspective, that's what I would suggest um, as one measure of good mentorship from the applicant's perspective.
1: Well, I I look, I think that's actually a great point. And if you look, and again, uh, I'm a little bit biased having just completed my fellowship at, at the University of Pennsylvania. But if you look at the fellows, starting back at uh, Dr. Rotundo, uh, who was a first fellow at Penn, if you look at all the different fellows that have graduated from the Penn Trauma Fellowship, the majority of them, and I think it's over 90 at this point, are in leadership positions, both here in the U.S. and abroad. And so I think that's reflective of the type of guidance that they've received, absolutely. And it's sometimes a little bit hard to judge. Now, that doesn't mean that you know, other fellowships are not going to provide you with good training. And I think that's why I go back to what I mentioned earlier, which is really, it's about attaining a balance. Now, you know, certain individuals, Bob, are going to have different, you know, needs and necessities. So some people have to be in a certain geographic location and that, you know, might limit you. But, you know, trying to find that balance is is really key. What you end up doing uh, is is really um, kind of demonstrates your personal uh, initiative and how much you really want to make a dent in the field. And so, you know, you can have someone that is at maybe not an Ivy League institute and they do phenomenal, phenomenal things. And that's why I think it's important to really kind of take a step back and figure out what your main goals are. Because I don't think you have to be at Harvard you know, to be this great, you know, trauma critical care surgeon. I think it depends upon uh, you and what you do as an individual.
0: Yeah. So, so that's a nice, I think, summary of how the resident should approach fellowship, be it um, setting him or herself up during the residency and then looking at the actual fellowship in terms of mentoring and whatnot. Let's switch gears for a second now. Let's talk about the graduating fellow. So Much like fellowship, uh, choosing a first job obviously is very, very subjective. There's going to be a lot of uh, factors that weigh in, be it uh, family or job or otherwise. So having said that, uh, the paucity of uh, trauma surgeons throughout the country really does put the fellow applicant in a position of strength when looking at a job. And I remember very well uh, one of my mentors from the University of uh, Pittsburgh, Mitch Fink, uh, told me that I'll never be in such a good negotiating position again as I was when I was first finishing my fellowship. And and I do think that he was correct. So with that in mind, um, what are some attributes to consider when you are comparing jobs coming out of fellowship?
1: Well, you know, I think you really uh, hit the nail on the head, Bob. Right now, the market, if you will, uh, is great for, for those finishing up fellowship in our field one of, I think, the nice benefits after so many years of training. And as in fellowship, uh, you have to rank your priorities. So the first and foremost is, do you want or do you have to be in a certain geographic location? Uh, And if you do, that's gonna obviously limit you somewhat, but at the same time, might make it easier in the sense that it'll narrow down your search. The second thing I did was decide what must, uh, what I, what I, definitely need to have, meaning do you want to be in an academic place like Penn or are you looking for more of a community trauma center? And I think this is a very subjective question that depends on each individual. So if one desires to do basic science research, have a significant amount of protected non-clinical time, uh, then you probably are looking for an academic type position. Now, if you want to be primarily clinical, those jobs are out there as well. And I think it just it really depends upon the person and what they find themselves uh, being uh, happiest at. Finally, you want to consider, I think, the people that you're working with and, uh, again, the mentorship uh, as a young faculty member in the group that you're going to join. The group that you're going to join will end up being like your second family. So I think it's very wise to take your time to get to know the faculty as much as possible, and to speak with other people that are familiar with the program. Because you're gonna be spending so much time with these individuals that uh, they can really you know, make or break you.
0: So um, all good points, and let's try to operationalize them. So let's just assume that you, the candidate, has gone into a great fellowship, life is good. Mm -hmm. Um, You know kind of what type of job you want based on geographic locale, and you're trying to decide academic, non-academic, you know, that kind of stuff. What do you do during your fellowship to try to tee this up so when it comes time for decision, you're in an optimal position?
1: In fellowship, I think you want to spend as much time as possible attempting to learn as much about your field. So in our case, trauma-critical care. Knowledge is power. Uh, And this allows you to play a significant role when others ask for your opinion or thoughts. Uh, And this happens on the interview trail. But more importantly, it allows you to do the right thing for your patients. So my, my own personal goal was every day as a fellow, I should read something every day, even if it's only for 30 minutes, because it really adds up over time. The second thing is research and presentations. The more you publish, the more relevant you are, the more networking you're going to be able to take part of uh, in the meetings. And this definitely then opens up doors and lets you get to know the people within your field, which can help you later on down the line when you're looking for a job. Now, the question in the end is, does it matter? Well, if you want to go to an academic career and you're trying to secure 50% non-clinical time, and some seed money, yet you have not been productive during fellowship, one might wonder if you're worth the investment or the risk. So the bottom line uh, is that this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is, you know, being super overqualified, that never hurt anyone when you're looking for a job. But the opposite might not be Uh, true.
0: Okay, fine. But here I am in a really busy clinical fellowship, you know, one of the big trauma centers in the country, shock trauma, writer, University of Washington, the the really big busy ones, USC. Where do I get the time to write a paper? Yeah, well, you know, uh, I I think that's a really good point.
1: Uh, All of these fellowships uh, are going to be extremely busy. Uh, But I think that, you know, one thing that we have to learn to do Uh, as physicians in general, especially as surgeons, is learn how to manage our time appropriately. And I found that even at the busiest centers, if you learn how to manage your time, you'll be able to get a number of things done. And, you know, again, I'll just go back to Penn, where we're significantly busy. We have high volume, uh, you know, center. But the majority of our fellows were able to put together presentations, publish uh, you know, a number of different papers, present nationally. And so it's it's really goes back to, you know, the person and it's up to you as to whether or not you're going to do it. You know, I can make every excuse in the world, you know, when I get home as to whether or not I'm going to put together that abstract or go to the gym. But in the end, you know, it's up to me whether or not I'm going to do it.
0: So a lot of this is so, done on your own time at home.
1: Well, some of it is done on your own time, but... I will tell you that you know a lot of fellowships factor this in. So for example, you know, we had during our second year where we we're fellows in exception when we weren't on service, you were pretty much either you know taking call or helping out here and there, but you had time to do research. Now, if you didn't use that time for research and you know decided to sleep in every day, that's fine, but then you weren't productive. And so again, It goes back to really kind of being efficient with your time and deciding that, listen, I'm going to do this because, you know, I want to make an impact on my field. And again, even if you do just a little bit every day, in the end, you know, when you have those goals, you'll be able to accomplish them even at a busy fellowship.
0: All right. And so how does the interview process for getting a job now work? The first step, the second step, what's the whole process?
1: Yeah. So... Initially, what I ended up doing is I first met with my mentors uh, here uh, at Penn, uh, and I sat down with uh, both Dr. Schwab and Dr. Riley and discussed with them uh, the job process. Uh, and you have to, I think, do a little bit of you know work prior to meeting with your mentors because there's a few questions you're going to have to answer. First and foremost is, do you have to be in a certain geographic location? So after you do all that background work, your mentors are really wonderful in helping guide you as to what place they think uh, would be worth looking at. I, I think that when you're when you're getting ready to go out on the interview trail, uh, you have to um, figure out where you're gonna best fit in, and that's really what I was looking for: is what place do I see myself? you know, fitting in with the group, fitting in from a lifestyle perspective, and then also being able to be uh, successful academically. And we're such a small group of individuals in trauma-critical care that most people know individuals. So if you had have good mentors like I did, you're going to really um, have a good uh, kind of um, insight as to what's going on out there Uh, in the job market and what places are really worth looking at.
0: All right. And so you've you've made this list of potential places, five, six, seven, however many you want. You send out a letter of inquiry. They say, yeah, come on down for an interview. And then how does the process go?
1: Yeah. So the first thing I did was I sent letters to all the places that I was interested in. Uh, At that point.
0: Does it matter if they have a job posted or not? Did you look at east.org or any other jobless thing? So
1: I did use the East website, which I think is very helpful. Uh, And not only does you know, the East website have job listings, but we also ended up putting together uh, an East fellowship guide, which people can refer back to. And that's easily accessible on the website, which kind of goes through some of the points that I've discussed and actually touches on a lot of other things like personal statement, etc. But I, I did use that website, but I also kind of, not all the jobs are posted on the website, which is why uh, the mentors are key and other people that you're meeting when you're presenting at national, uh, you know, meetings are is very useful. Uh, and so what I did is I ended up sending letters out uh, to all the different places that I was interested in and waited for a response. And sometimes, you know, these individuals are obviously extremely busy at the other centers. So if you don't hear back from them in a couple weeks, I would usually send them an email just to confirm that they got the letter uh, and that, you know, yes, they have a position, no, they don't. And most of the places that uh, I sent Uh, letters to, we're very responsive as to, yes, we have a position. We'd love to have you come out or, you know what? uh, Thanks for the letter, but, you know, we don't have anything available right now. And uh, so you go down, that one. So you, so you go down for your, you know, first interview and really kind of the first interview is to just make sure that, you know, (laughs) you, uh, you can overall see yourself like, you know, being with these individuals and you get along with them for the most part. And just to kind of check out the lay of the land. Uh, and it's really kind of a investigative type, uh, interview where obviously you're going to meet with a lot of the faculty, uh, and you know, they're going to get to evaluate you and at the same time you're evaluating them. And so it's,
0: uh, it's a really, um, did you have to go through the whole letter of recommendation bit again, or does the fellowship just speak for itself?
1: Initially, you don't have to go through the letter of recommendation process. Although if you get further along, uh, in the interview process, many of the places will ask you for letters of recommendation. Okay. Uh, but as I was talking about a little bit earlier uh, in this podcast, it's really important to try to get to know, uh, you know, the faculty that you're meeting with because you're going to be with them for a significant amount of time. And I was, I was very appreciative of the fact that all of the places I went to, I really felt that people were uh, very open uh, and honest throughout the whole process, which is refreshing because that's sometimes not always the case. So,
0: so what'd you ask him? Like, how does it go?
1: Yeah. So, uh, my, m- during my first interview, I really tried to get a sense of, you know, how things worked uh, at the Institute. So I would talk to them about, you know, you know, specifically what, you know, their role was, uh, you know, what their everyday day of life, day of life, uh, you know, uh, schedule was, um, how they uh, interacted with advanced level practitioners, with the residents, with the students, you know, where uh, their time for uh, research and academic productivity came into place. Another another important thing was um, to talk to them about uh, what they were seeing from a uh, trauma critical care uh, perspective. So volume wise, uh, how sick, uh, their patients were uh, in the ICU, uh, what their operative experience was and I think you know you have to remember to break that up between their uh, operative trauma as well as the emergency surgery and potential general surgery uh, experience you might have uh, in being a uh, part of their institute.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with that and I'll just share one little uh, story about one of the places I interviewed for a job which was not the University of Pennsylvania. Um I was, I was talking to one of the faculty members, and um, you know, he said to me, look, you know, we have a lot of patients here, a lot of, good, lot of disease. It's actually quite fun, uh, and we get paid a lot of money. Uh, the problem is, and this, this attests to the honesty, uh, the problem is that I mean, we are so incredibly short-staffed that we just don't have time for anything. And my car broke down several weeks ago. Um, I have enough money to go buy a car cash. I just don't have time, so I've been taking the bus to work and something like that to me anyway was kind of a red flag as far as quality of life and uh you know time for my family uh should I join a shop. So these types of comments do come out in the midst of a interview so long as one is kind of honest and non-judgmental.
1: Yeah, and I think that's important because quality of life is something that I think I would say the majority of us are looking for and this goes back to finding that balance. So, you know, there are some places that you know you operate a lot, you know, you're doing a lot of great things, but, you know, you never see the light of day. And uh, I think in the end, uh, you have to really kind of evaluate that and see if that's something that you want.
0: Uh, so so that's your first interview. Yeah. And uh, you do a number of these things and who and decides the other, on the? Oh, go
1: ahead. oh, so I was just going to say the other thing during the first interview that I, I didn't do at all uh, was ask about. Uh, salary or compensation or vacation I think that's pretty much you know again at this point you're you're there for the first time you're just trying to get to know the faculty members the ancillary staff how things work so you're not really concerned about all those other details which will come later on in the process and I think you know it looks a little bit superficial if you were to ask for that initially now sometimes programs will tell you up front even during the first interview about it. And that's fine if they talk about it, but I wouldn't necessarily uh, bring it up uh, during my first interview.
0: I completely agree with you. <laughs> so having said that then, um, it's time for the second interview. And who decides, on this do you send a note out or do they send a note out, how does it work?
1: So after all of my um, first interviews, uh, what I would do is I would send them a letter uh, thanking them uh, for having me come out uh, and interview with them, see their shop, uh, talk to their faculty members, and uh, what typically happens at most places is the faculty meets and decides, you know, does this person fit in with us, and should we bring them back for a second look? And, you know, I was uh, I was fortunate that uh, I was brought back for a second look at all the places I was looking at, um, but, uh, you know, I, I suppose it might not always be the case. Now uh the second interview is really kind of getting down into the uh nitty-gritty details and um you know this is w- this is when you want to start asking uh more of those uh detailed uh questions as to you know what's my role going to be how do you see me fitting uh within your group uh you know at that point also you know compensation will probably come up and it's important to remember you know Dr. Riley uh, God bless him. Mentioned this to me is that it's not it's not only about the base salary. You got to think about your retirement. And so sometimes you might have uh, a base salary that's a little bit higher than another place, but their retirement package is not as great. And that might uh, uh, be something that in the future uh, is a lot more important. So you ha- you have to really kind of you know uh, sit back and look at the whole. Uh, the whole package and see, you know, are they going to offer you even seed money uh, when you start out? How much protected time are they going to plan on giving you uh, when you're starting out for, uh, from a research perspective, uh, call schedule, call schedule, how do national meetings work? How does the actual, you know, group function on a day-to-day basis? Meaning like, you know, are, are there separate services, you know, are people, you know, on call, you know, every week. So all those fine details that you really want to kind of hash out during your second interview.
0: But let's let's drill down on the taboo topic because I remember very well being a fellow and nobody wanted to talk about it and I had no idea where I was going. So let's talk about money. How do you even figure out if a dollar figure that the program has thrown out um, is reasonable? Like what is a reference point to use? So from a salary perspective...
1: Uh, there are two different uh, manuals that you can really look at to figure out where uh, the institute is uh, with respect to national standards. And one is the AMA uh, manual, the other is the MGA. And uh, both of these are are available uh, either through your institute or even uh, online. And it will provide you with a reference point. So are are they sitting at 85% national standard or are they below that? And uh, a lot of the institutes will actually mention this to you, that we are, you know, sitting here compared to national standards. Now, the other thing that you have to remember is that cost of living is different uh, in obviously different geographic locations. So if you're going to be working in New York City, uh, your salary is likely going to be or have to be higher uh, versus if you're uh, in the middle of uh, rural America. And so uh, that's uh, something to take uh, into consideration.
0: Did now, you ask any of the um, junior attendings, people mm-hmm. you kind of palled around with, you know, kind of what's your salary, or perhaps maybe not so or, so overtly, this is the salary I've been offered. Is this even reasonable? Did you bring up a dollar figure overtly with uh, with uh, someone you trusted?
1: I I brought up dollar figures with individuals that were outside of my. Interview process. I would not specifically bring up dollar figures with other faculty members because I didn't feel honestly comfortable. No, I'm I mean, I am mean back in your
0: fellowship. I'm mean back back with your mentors during the. You know, you've gone to University of uh, um, South Carolina. Oh, You're okay. back at Penn, and you want to ask this question.
1: I I specifically didn't uh, because I had looked up the national standards, but that's definitely another um, you know option. Uh, is to go back to your mentors and be like, listen, here's what they're offering me. Is this reasonable? the the other The other thing, in addition to the base salary, is to ask um, the leadership at the institute that you're interviewing at. Is how does your salary change? So in five years, are people getting paid the same thing, except for cost of living? Has the salary been, you know, bumped up? Uh, and uh, the you know the final thing you want to remember is: is there a group? Um, pot at the end of the year that gets split up and how does that work because a lot of times you know it works on productivity and productivity is not only clinical but it can also be academic so meaning you know the number of papers you've written uh, the meetings you've presented at the committees that you're chairing and so you want to ask those questions and you know ensure that you know you're going to be able to take part in some of these different attributes because uh, in some places you have to wait a couple years before they throw you in the pool. And in some places you can negotiate uh, starting out uh, in the pool from the get go.
0: And is there a third interview?
1: So uh, I think, you know, the third interview uh, is not mandatory, uh, but uh, I definitely did go on uh, third interviews. And I think you really save the third interviews for the places that. You really see yourself uh uh being a part of, and so uh, I did go on a couple of third interviews um just to kind of iron out some final details uh maybe answer questions that uh I still had and uh to kind of really see how I would fit in with uh the group and then also you use it uh from a real estate perspective to look around uh the area outside of your uh interview process to be able to see where you would live and and uh, if you could actually see yourself uh, in that uh, location. Okay.
0: And then just to kind of bring things to a close, and I know it's, it's way too early uh, right now to comment on this because you're just about to start at MUSC, uh, but just briefly, what are your plans for maximizing your success as you're about to embark on the start of your job?
1: Well, I think that's a good question, Dr. Cerani. Um Personally, what I've done is a couple things. Number one, Uh, I realized that even though I've had all this training, I need to spend the first few years really honing my clinical skills. And so I plan on trying to be as active as possible uh, clinically, uh, to operate as much as possible, to really kind of uh, take all of those different attributes uh, that uh, I learned over the past seven years and implement them into my practice. Uh, I think the second thing is to set goals for yourself. So, uh, you know, I have a one-year goal of at least putting together, you know, one one project uh, by the end of my first year, uh, which I think is, is uh, reasonable, uh, and I think it also allows me the time uh, to uh, really kind of get to know the system that I'm going to be a part of, uh, to be active clinically, and to figure out really how things work over that first year. I then have another uh, five-year goal which uh, is more detailed but includes other research projects and grants. And so I think that um, setting uh, goals up are gonna be extremely important. uh, And so that way you don't wake up one day and realize it's four years went by and you haven't done anything. And so uh, for me, I think that's the key and that's what I've done. And hopefully uh, with uh, that type of uh, defined structure in place, as well as with my mentors, uh, both at uh, the Medical University of South Carolina and at uh, the Penn Trauma uh, Center and other places. Hopefully, I'll be able to be successful uh, from an academic perspective.
0: Well, i got to say, I think think that our conversation today has been very insightful. I do hope and I do believe that it's going to be very helpful for both the um, graduating resident looking into going into trauma and also the graduating fellow who is looking at Uh, his or her first job, and how these processes work. We've been speaking today with Dr. Joseph Saccharin regarding choosing a fellowship in trauma and critical care surgery, and also about getting your first job coming out of fellowship. I would like to thank Dr. Saccharin again for taking the time to share his views with us, and I'm pretty sure that this is going to be one of the most popular podcasts we have done, uh, as the one comment that I hear from all of my residents and many fellows is that they really don't understand the whole process and are afraid to ask what appears to them uh, to be questions on taboo topics. This concludes another edition of the EAST Trauma Cast. For copyright uh, information and disclaimers, please visit us at east.org. For the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, I'm Dr. Babak Sarani.